Okay, do you remember this about a month ago? So, you know, you have a sh charlatan preacher trying to pretend to raise a fake dead person. I guess the person I feel most sorry for there is the guy who's in the coffin. Because if you've seen the actual video clip of this, it starts a bit before the scene. And it shows you this poor guy lying in this coffin and his mouth's open. He's obviously been lying there for some time because a fly or something must have flown in <laughs> and landed on his face because he's kind of going... <laughs> so, so that kind of didn't anger me, it just irritated me that another ridiculous thing. But what got under my skin good and proper was about three or four days later. I'm driving to Centurion for the fourth time to try and pick up my driver's re renewal card. Took six months, so I'm in a bad mood, right? Driving on the freeways, humping about it. And I had the great misfortune to switch on the radio. And on comes this pseudo-intellectual dude who's saying, look there, how can anybody take Christianity seriously? I mean, it's all a fraud, it's all a fake. I mean, phone in and convince me why I should believe this rubbish. Let's carry on like this. You know, it was so puerile, and it, it was like a... He was trying to compare a party cracker to an atomic bomb. That's the kind of comparison. Or a high-felt mining tremor to a nine-point on the Richter scale earthquake. So that kind of flicked my switch a touch. <laughs> but you know, weighing in the scales of history against that kind of stuff, there have been a whole succession over the centuries of highly articulate, highly intelligent men and women who have sifted through the evidence and have found that it's true. Many famous people, I'll give you just one among a, a long list. His name was, he was attorney by the name of John Copley, better known as Lord Lindhurst. He was the Attorney General of Great Britain and three times High Chancellor of England. It's not a lightweight. When he died in 1863, they found among his papers, his personal papers on his desk, a letter he had seemed to have written to a friend, and in it contained these words. I know pretty well what evidence is. And I tell you, such evidence as that for the resurrection has never broken down yet. And the centuries roll by, and the decades roll on, and nobody can disprove it because it's strong, strong evidence. As a 30-year-old man, a brand-new Christian, uh, came into my hands a book called Who Moved the Stone? And Who Moved the Stone is by a man called Frank Morrison. I've put into the bulletin a little picture and the title of that book if you haven't read it yet. Very encouraging. Briefly, here's the story of this man. He's an attorney. And his friends are all Christians, and he's not. And they keep witnessing to him, and he's getting irritated. So he says, I know what I'll do. I'll research the resurrection carefully as an attorney. I'll sift the evidence, and I'll write a book disproving it. And then I'll say to them, no, butt out. Stop irritating me because, look, it's all nonsense. And he produced the book in, from his notes. So it's a chronicle, starting in chapter 1, with him as a disbeliever setting out to disprove. And with the last chapter as him as a Christian, on his knees, thanking the risen Lord of heaven and earth. Because he honestly weighed the evidence. And here's the interesting thing. 90% of the evidence is found in the scripture itself. So he weighed the scriptures carefully with a legal mind saying, hello, 
That couldn't, what, that, gosh, that's true. Look, it's corroborated. Look at this evidence. Look at this piece that all fits together, and so on. Then there's another man called Josh McDowell. He's written a book many years ago called More Evidence That Demands a Verdict. It's got a whole section on it. It's not academic. It's from a layman's perspective, but fairly thorough. So, and we've got dozens of other resources, but you actually don't need them. Just go straight to the Gospels, read the evidence, sift it. Easter is fast approaching. I'd rather call it Passover season. I actually don't like that word Easter, but it's kind of coined of the realm, so we all use it. But it's fast approaching. What's it, three weeks off now? So I thought it's a good time of year for us to look at a little bit more evidence and kind of feed ourselves with some more information that you might not have considered. And that will encourage us and encourage us all to go back into the scriptures this Easter and to study them again. But first, let me ask a question. Why is it so jolly important? Why is the resurrection so important that people throughout the generations have all tried to attack it? Why is it important to me? Why is it important to you? Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, 17, and he puts his finger right on the issue. He says, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You're still in your sin. And a few verses earlier, he writes, if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless. And so is your faith. So is it important? Yep. But this is also the reason why it's attacked so often. Because it's, uh, it's the thumping heart of Christianity. Christ has risen. He lives forevermore. The conqueror of death and sin. The Lord of life. So it's an important issue. And it's worth considering. So I want to deal with this morning uh, an aspect or two that are seldom written about. In fact, I was trying to look up some commentaries on this, and I found that the particular verse in question that, that I'll be focusing on is kind of skipped over in its entirety in some commentaries, because you'll see it's a strange and wondrous story that appears only in the Gospel of Matthew. So let's actually read. So turn, click, flick to Matthew 27, verses 45 to 54, or simply lift up thine eyes unto the screen from whence cometh <laughs> the words. It's probably the easier solution. So let's read it together from verse 45 to 54. From the sixth hour until the ninth hour, darkness came over all the land. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sakabathani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And when some of those standing there heard this, they said, he's calling Elijah. And immediately one of them ran and got a sponge and he filled it with wine vinegar, put it on a stick and offered it to Jesus to drink. But the rest said, leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to save him. And when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. At that moment... The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook and the rocks split and the tombs broke open and the bodies of many holy men who had died were raised to life. They came out of the tombs and after Jesus' resurrection they went into the holy city and appeared to many people. And when the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and all that had happened, they were terrified and exclaimed, Surely! He was the Son of God. 
So a little bit of detail in the, in the explanation. The, the hours that it's talking about here, the, uh, Jesus dies at about 9 o'clock on the Friday morning. The Jewish day would start at sunset on the previous day. We're having our tenebrae service on the f Thursday night because from 6 o'clock onwards, Good Friday has officially started in terms of the Jewish calendar. 9 o'clock on Friday morning, Jesus is crucified. The 6th to the ninth hour is 12 noon to 3 p.m. And it records that an utter darkness falls upon the world. Now, there's no historical evidence of something like that happening on a wide scale, so we can only assume it was fairly localized, but it must have been an incredible portent to the people of that day. Because three hours, you can't have an eclipse that lasts three hours. There's nothing that they could easily say, oh, this is just that. No, it was something extraordinary. I remember as a 16-year-old boy trying to wrestle with the implications of this. Why did the sky go dark? What was happening there? And I remember penning these simple words. The sky went dark to hide his pain on the day the Son of God was slain. I think that was what happening. Well, certainly from an emotional perspective. Jesus was in pain, pain of separation. Father was in pain, the Holy Spirit in pain. Hey, the whole of creation was in pain. When they stood in shock, the whole heavenly host must have been in absolute agony as they said, oh, how can this be? As Jesus breathes his last and God incarnate gives up his very life breath for the sake of humanity, miserable, undeserving humanity. And the separation that Jesus must have been feeling was because he was carrying upon himself the weight of the rebellion and sin of the entire human race. And rebellion and sin brings separation from the Father. So he must have been feeling the most utter, devastating separation as he represented men and women in their millions separated from the presence of God. And so he cries out in a loud voice and he says, Oh my God, my God, where are you? Why have you deserted me? He cries out from the words of Psalm 22, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That psalm actually goes on. Why are you so far from saving me? So far from the words of my groaning. And then a fascinating little detail and Mark's gospel explains it more fully for us. A soldier goes and gets a stick and he dips, puts a sponge on there and he dips it into red wine vinegar and holds it up to Jesus' lips. Mark says that stick was a hyssop branch, hyssop, which is a, a tall, strong reed. And its, its flower is like a little paintbrush. Now, why, why is that significant? Because on the day of the very first Passover, and this was all happening to Jesus on Passover, Go right back to the beginning. And God said to Moses, Tell every family in Israel, Take a lamb, slaughter it, Consume it among yourselves, one per family, and Then take a hyssop branch, Dip it in the blood of the lamb, And paint the blood on the lintels of your home. And tonight when the angel of death passes over, Hence the word Passover, Passes over and looks and says, Ah, children of God there, I'll pass over and spare the firstborn. 
Here, this unknowing soldier with no intellect and ability to grasp what he's doing takes a hyssop and paints red wine on the very gate of heaven. Not just into a person's home, into the very gateway, the very doorway into eternity, linking the first Passover with the last. Incredible detail right there in the scriptures for us to marvel over. Jesus gives up his spirit then voluntarily. He doesn't expire. Gosh, you know, people that are crucified go on for days sometimes in agony. No, oh, just a few hours. The moment's right. All has been done. It is complete. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And he breathes his life out. And at that very moment, a great earthquake strikes. Can you imagine the panic in Jerusalem? It's pitch, pitch black. And they don't know why. And now the earth starts to tremble. Have you ever been in, a, in an earthquake? Ah, I've only been in a small tremor. Wow, but I've seen the pictures. It must be horrifying, horrifying. Dark and everything shaking. And in that moment, the, the curtain that divides the holy place from the most holy place in the temple, that is, separates the inner sanctum, the holy of holies, where the replica of the very throne of God, the Ark of the Covenant resides, the very presence of God, symbolizing that, is ripped apart from top to bottom. It's almost as if the hand of God comes down and grabs this huge big curtain and just goes, rah! For the way is open. Now we can enter into the very presence of God for the sin and rebellion of mankind has been dealt with on the cross of Calvary. The price paid. Listen to how it's expressed in the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 20. It says, We have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, opened for us through the curtain that is his body. Then just as Jesus dies, something, I guess you can call it bizarre, something wondrous, something very, very strange happens. The tombs around the city of Jerusalem break open. Now these are not little coffins lying buried under soil. Jesus was not buried in a coffin. He was buried in a tomb cut into the side of a small little hill. And around that area of Jerusalem, especially outside the Damascus Gate, are many little hillocks and, and little areas where they would tunnel in and make these, these tombs. Now the earthquake is shaking, and the tombs break open. But all that happens initially is that the tombs are opened Yet they're still only just full of dead men's bones <coughs> and dust and nothing more. You see, the way has been broken open. Jesus on the cross of Calvary has made it potentially possible for everyone who believes to come back into the presence of God. But a dead man cannot walk into the presence of God. You cannot have a relationship with the living God if you're dead. So the tombs open, but the dead have not been raised. 
for something more is needed. Something more is needed. So let's read on further into the next chapter. Chapter 28, verses 1 through 6. 28, 1 through 6. After the Sabbath, at dawn on the first day of the week, the Sabbath being the Saturday, the first day of the week being Sunday, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. And there was a violent earthquake. This is the second one. Maybe it's a huge, strong aftershock, but the earthquake hits again. And an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. And his appearance was like lightning and his clothes were white as snow. And the gods were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. And the angel said to the woman, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here. He has risen, just as he said. Did you know that the tomb of Jesus was not opened so that he could get out? He was already out. It was opened so that they could look in. And they could testify to the world through the scripture that he wasn't there. The tomb was empty. He had risen. And Jesus rises from the dead as the very first fruit from among the dead. And now those broken open tombs around Jerusalem out come the living. The holy ones that had died previously walk out and walk around Jerusalem and are viewed and seen by many, many people. It's the strangest story, isn't it? Now, there's no detail about this, but they couldn't have died again, you know, because they weren't just resuscitated. They must have been ascended up into heaven like Elijah. For they were given new life, and they were a powerful symbol and a powerful testimony of resurrected life. Christ has risen from the dead. New life at last is available to all who will believe. And look with your eyes, people of Jerusalem, the evidence walks among you. The evidence lives among you. That's for me the significance of this strange little passage that's recorded for us in Holy Scripture. See, the cross signifies our redemption from sin and death, but the empty tomb is the symbol and basis for our resurrected life in Christ. The cross of Christ, Jesus pays for the sin and rebellion, the broken covenant, the penalty of violated contract between God and his creation. But life, spiritual life, eternal life comes through the resurrection of Jesus. He rises and breathes out life into the universe. Believe in me and you will live. And you will have life in my name. For I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the resurrection and the life. It's of the uttermost importance, therefore. That's why it's attacked over the centuries. That's why we need to treasure it in our hearts, and this time of year particularly. Think again about these things. The cross and the empty tomb are powerful symbols of amazing truth. The way is open. The tombs are broke open. 
life is given. And we can have that not just in the end, but now. Eternity starts the minute we are born again of the Spirit and continues past physical death on for eternity. Consider just a few ways in which this is so important. First of all, Jesus gave his resurrection as the sign of his divinity, you know. Remember he's talking about the temple in Jerusalem and he says, you see this temple? Talking to the Pharisees. I tell you, this temple, there won't be one stone laid upon another. It's going to be destroyed. But this temple, this temple, I will raise up in three days. Remember they said, is he daft? Does he not know the temple took 40 years to build? And then it says, P.S. They did not realize he was talking about himself, not the temple. And one other thing he said along the same lines. He said this, a wicked and adulterous generation asks for a sign. Only one sign shall be given it, the sign of Jonah, who was in the belly of the great fish for three days. Just so, the Son of Man will be in the belly, the bosom, in the womb of the earth for three days. He was was saying, this is important, guys. I'm giving it to you as the evidence of my divinity. Look and see. It is right before you. Secondly, it's the evidence of the trustworthiness of the Bible. Now, to follow the argument a little bit here, you see, the Bible gives sufficient detail, sufficient corroborating evidence, sufficient aspects of this to make it an irrefutable case before the most trained legal minds. Therefore, the Bible is to be trusted. Hey, if the Holy Spirit can make sure that this kind of detail is recorded among, about this cardinal fact, it's trustworthy. Don't have to argue about fancy theological terms. Know the that it's inspired and trustworthy and authoritative. And we can rely on it. Thirdly, it's a demonstration of the possibility of eternal life. Jesus rises again, so do we when we are born again of the Spirit. We too can be born again of the Spirit of God that raised him from the dead and live in his presence now and forever And it's a demonstration of this. Fourthly, it's a living hope, you know, that carries us through the darkest moments in our life. We've prayed for people earlier who are sick, somebody whose dad died, somebody else whose friends got but days or weeks to live. In those dark, dark hours when our own sky goes dark to hide our pain, we have the hope of the resurrection burning in us. For we know that nothing can happen to this mortal body that can come and even hold a candlelight to the brilliance of the promise that we have of real life. We can hold on to that. Again, listen to how Peter writes about that from a different aspect. But he says in 1 Peter 1, 3-4, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, and into an inheritance can never perish, spoil or fade, kept in heaven for you. Bring it on, adversity. Bring it on. Nothing you can do can rob me of this. Herein is my life, my true life. And fifthly, 
It's an enormous demonstration of the power of the Holy Spirit. Again, listen to what Paul writes in Ephesians 1, 19-30, such familiar verses. He writes, His incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is like the working of His mighty strength which He exerted in Christ when He raised Him from the dead. That power that raised the Son of God from the tomb is made available to us. That same power. When you look at the resurrection, remember these five wonderful, and there are many others, but these five incredible factual benefits to us and to our life and to our loved one. So listen, don't pay too much attention to scoffers particularly the pseudo-intellectual variety. <laughs> if you happen to confront one, I've found that the best tactic is to simply and politely and kindly to say, may I suggest that you actually read the evidence for yourself and then let's talk. Because my experience is that these guys seldom ever read the Gospels, let alone the rest of the Scriptures. But they pontificate like crazy from a basis of Almost zero understanding. But the evidence is right here. Right here. Now, rather than being disturbed, let's take hope in the facts of the resurrection and feed on them in our hearts this, this Christmas, <laughs> Christmas, this Easter season. <laughs> That's another word I don't like particularly. This Passover season. Remember them, you know, and read the scriptures again and say, oh, Lord, it is a wondrous thing and a mighty thing. But, you know, it wasn't just two physical earthquakes that rocked the world in the year 30 AD. There was an earthquake of cosmic proportions taking place. On the Friday when God the Son, the very incarnation of the fullness of the Godhead, breathes out His Spirit, the whole of the intelligent created realm. You know, the whole of the created realm must have held its breath in, in aghast. The most shocking thing that could be witnessed in all of thought and imagination has just taken place. The earth shakes, the sky goes dark, and the creation says, Oh no, how can it be? But on the third day, when he rises from the dead, can you imagine the earthquake of celebration that must have rippled across the cosmos? He's risen. He's alive. Forevermore, our God is the conqueror of death and hell and darkness and separation and rebellion. Hallelujah. What an earthquake of rejoicing. That's what we celebrate. On Resurrection Sunday, when we come together and we sing together, we are saying we are part of the whole created order once again this year, giving the utmost praise to the most marvelous thing that our minds could ever conceive of. What you have done and who you are, our resurrected Lord. So, look, rejoice. And don't get thrown by the scoffers. And let the continuing aftershocks of that mighty event stir our hearts up again this Passover season. And God will bless us as we bless him in remembering this 
awesome time. Amen.